0: On February 5, 1916, a new nightclub opened in Zurich, Switzerland. Its name was Cabaret Voltaire. Cabaret Voltaire had what we would call an open mic, although, of course, they didn't have mics, so entertainment was a mixed bag. Local poets read their work. The club's manager, Hugo Ball, played the piano while his girlfriend, a singer and part-time passport forger, belted out ballads. A troupe of Russian balalaika players played folk music. It was all quirky and kind of charming. But things started getting seriously weird as Zurich's grab bag of artists discovered the club. One night, three artists got on stage and read a poem simultaneously in three different languages with a drum, whistle, and rattle as accompaniment. They held concerts with typewriters' rakes and pot lids as instruments. When one of them brought in some of his latest works, cardboard masks inspired by the African masks he had seen in museums, the artist performed in, ironic air quotes here, African tribal dance, or at least what a bunch of white guys in Switzerland in 1916 imagined was an African tribal dance. There developed a sense of frantic creativity, balanced on the edge of sanity. Hugo Ball wrote in his diary, Everyone has been seized by an indefinable intoxication. The little cabaret is about to come apart at the seams and is getting to be a playground for crazy emotions. A few weeks later, he wrote, What we are celebrating is both buffoonery and a requiem mass what guests at the Cabaret Voltaire were witnessing was the birth of a new art movement, one that is still influencing creators a century later. They were witnessing the birth of Dada. And this is the year that was, 1919. Welcome to the podcast about history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lundy, and I'm so glad you're listening. We spent the last two weeks of the podcast looking at big international affairs type stuff, the League of Nations and the Treaty of Versailles. We are not yet done with the Paris Peace Conference or the 14 points, but I thought we should take a break from wars and revolutions and spend some time on art. We're going to look at Dada, one of the most influential art movements to hit Western culture. And when I say hit, do you remember the Monty Python sketch called the fish slapping dance? Where Michael Palin repeatedly slaps John Cleese in the face with some fish. And then John Cleese pulls out a really huge fish and slaps Michael Palin so hard he falls into a canal. Yeah, Dada was like that. The term Dada was invented on April 18th, 1916. We know the date because one of the artists recorded it in his diary. Exactly how the word was selected is unclear. According to one story, it was picked at random from a French dictionary. Dada means nothing. The international crew at Cabaret Voltaire liked the word because it could sound like yes, yes in Romanian, and also meant hobby horse in French. One artist was thrilled when he learned that in the language of a certain African tribe, Dada was the name for the tail of a sacred cow. The more nonsensical the name, the better as far as the Dadaists were concerned. An early Dada journal asked, What is Dada? An art? A philosophy? Politics? A fire extinguisher? All possibilities, it implied, were equally valid. One artist declared of Dada, It changes, affirms, says the opposite at the same time. No importance, shouts, goes fishing. He went on, Dada is the chameleon of rapid and self-interested change. Dada is against the future. Dada is dead. Dada is absurd. Long live Dada. Hugo Ball, whom we met earlier playing the piano at Cabaret Voltaire, claimed, What we call Dada is a farce of nothingness in which all higher questions are involved. A gladiator's gesture, a play with shabby leftovers, the death warrant of posturing morality. It might be difficult to define Dada, but one thing at least is clear. Dada arose in response to the Great War. It was a violent artistic reaction to the violence of the wider world. It's not easy to tell the story of Dada because the movement was as chaotic and disorganized as the art. Dada would spring to life in one city, flourish for a few months, and then die out as suddenly as it came into being. I'm not even going to try to tell you all of the places Dada thrived, but rather follow a few streams of the movement in Zurich, New York and Paris. It's also difficult because people came and went abruptly as well. I've listened to enough podcasts to know that throwing out a bunch of names is a bad idea. So I'm going to tell you the names of a few key people and the rest will just come and go anonymously. If you're curious, I will recommend some really good sources on the website and you can track down any artists that caught your interest. We will start in Zurich because that's where Dada also started. And that was no accident. Zurich provided a home for many misfits and outcasts all trying to escape the war. I've mentioned Hugo Ball. He was a German and tried to enlist in the German army at the start of the war, but the invasion of Belgium left him disillusioned and bitter. He began attending anti-war protests and fled Germany in May 1915. He and his girlfriend supported themselves performing at nightclubs, and he was the founder of Cabaret Voltaire. Another early us was Tristan Zara. And I am probably butchering that name, and I'm very sorry about that. I listened to all sorts of YouTube videos, but I still don't know if I have it correct. Zara is one of the few Dadaists who remained with the movement for its entire run. So this is one name you should remember. Zara was a Romanian Jew whose family sent him to Zurich to avoid the draft. Jews were systematically discriminated against in Romania and weren't allowed even to be citizens. But they were most certainly required to fight in the Romanian army. Zara became the boy wonder of Dada. He was barely out of his teens when the movement kicked off. Zurich was full of people like Ball and Zara, people who, for whatever reason, wanted nothing to do with the Great War. Other immigrants in Zurich at the time included Irish novelist James Joyce, Austrian writer Stefan Zweig, and Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin. Lenin actually lived just up the road from Cabaret Voltaire, not more than a hundred yards away. Wouldn't it be awesome if the revolutionary had sometimes slipped in and enjoyed some avant-garde art at the cabaret? We have no evidence he did so, and it seems very unlikely. Lenin was not really interested in culture. Switzerland might have provided refuge from the war, but the war was always there. Just on the other side of the mountains, millions of men were dying hideous, meaningless deaths. And yet in Zurich, life went on much as always. It created a strange sense of unreality and drove people to indulge in freak distractions. Hugo Ball said, Switzerland is a birdcage surrounded by roaring lions. No wonder the revels at Cabaret Voltaire became manic and hysterical. They were fiddling while Rome burned. The artists shared a sense that all the old rules and traditions were dying, so they decided to kill some rules themselves. Before Dada, poetry was a thing, it had conventions and traditions and norms. Dada threw them all out the window. What is poetry? Whatever you want it to be. Nonsense syllables shouted over a kettle drum could be poetry. Simultaneous recitations in multiple languages. Random lines pulled out of a hat. Rules were meaningless. Tradition was meaningless. Life was meaningless. Events at Cabaret Voltaire rose to a fever pitch in early summer 1916. On one memorable night, Hugo Ball constructed an elaborate costume that he called his magic bishop regalia. Ball's entire body was covered in stiff tubes and topped with a sort of cape of bent cardboard. On his head, he wore another tube as a hat. The entire outfit was painted bright colors, blue, red, white, and gold. He had to be carried on stage, and there he read a poem called Karawane. This is a series of random sounds intoned in a sing song chant that steadily rises in intensity. Apparently it went something like this. <laughs> I think you've got the idea. This is an excerpt of the poem performed by a group known as Trio Ex Voco. I've put a link to the video on the website. As weird as it seems, Ball was somehow transformed during this experience, like a real bishop swept into mystical heights by sacred liturgy. The experience was so overwhelming that Ball shut down Cabaret Voltaire a few weeks later. This set the pattern for Dada. The movement was always falling apart. At the same time Ball was having mystical artistic experiences in Zurich, halfway around the world, a different group of exiled artists were creating their own Dada-esque art. New York City was another haven for expats, especially before the United States entered the conflict. French artists in particular found it a welcome refuge. Back home, life for men who could not or would not fight, life was uncomfortable. Women would stop healthy-looking men on the street, hand them white feathers, and berate them for being cowards. I'm going to focus on two main figures in the New York Dada scene, Marcel Duchamp and Francis Picabia. Both of them arrived there fleeing the war for one reason or another. Marcel Duchamp was an artist who had been deemed medically unfit early in the war. The exact nature of his medical condition is unclear, and it didn't seem to bother him for the rest of his 81 years. Duchamp also didn't give a flying flip about fighting the Germans. Unlike his two brothers, who volunteered for military duty, Duchamp seems to have been politely baffled by patriotic service. He headed for New York when the hostility of his two sisters-in-law, both desperately worried about their husbands at the front and annoyed to be cooking and cleaning for this apparently healthy slacker, became unbearable. Soon after Duchamp arrived in the States, his friend and fellow painter, Francis Bacabia, showed up. Bacabia was technically serving his country, Pacabia came from a very wealthy family, and at the start of the war, they had pulled strings to get him a cushy job as a driver for a general. The general, however, was not impressed by his chauffeur, who didn't seem to understand such obscure and complex military concepts as being on time. So the family pulled even more strings and got Pacabia a diplomatic appointment to Cuba to negotiate the sale of sugar to France. Pacabia's ship made a brief stopover in New York on its way to Cuba. But rather than continue on, mindful of his duty and the desperate need for supplies back in France, Pacabia disembarked to say hello to some friends and forgot to get back on the boat for a year. Both Duchamp and Picabia were well-known in artistic circles in New York because of their success at the 1913 Armory Show. This was a monumental exhibition named after the National Guard Armory Building, where it was housed. Duchamp's painting, Nude Descending a Staircase, had been the shock hit of the exhibition. If you're curious about the Armory Show and how it shot both Duchamp and Picabia to fame, you can um, read my book about it, The Modern Art Invasion, available anywhere fine books are sold. Okay, brief moment of self promotion there. Anyway, the works that made Picabia and Duchamp famous in 1913 were paintings. They were radical departures from traditional art, but they were still oil on canvas. But by 1916, both of them had rejected even that nod to tradition. Duchamp had given up painting entirely. He worked for a while on a large sculpture thingy made of wire, paint, and dust sandwiched between two large panes of glass. You can try to interpret the work visually, but that's not what Duchamp wanted. He wanted to move away from what he called retinal art, that is, art that appeals to the eye. Instead, he wanted art to be about ideas. And then one snowy day in the winter of 1915-1916, Duchamp wandered into a hardware store on Broadway. He noticed a snow shovel, and on impulse, he bought it. Back in his apartment, he carefully painted the words in advance of the broken arm on the handle. The snow shovel was now a work of art by Marcel Duchamp. Soon he was picking up all sorts of objects and labeling them as art. A comb, a coat rack, a plastic typewriter cover... It annoyed him that people tried to find meaning in the titles or tried to analyze the aesthetic of the shapes and the forms. None of that mattered. What mattered to Duchamp was the idea of an ordinary snow shovel as a work of art. He called these pieces his ready mades now, Picabia, meanwhile, had become obsessed with carefully executed drawings of machines or machine parts. These drawings were as precise as engineering plans and with about as much emotional content. He gave the drawings the names of his friends, turning a spark plug or a wiring diagram into a portrait. So what was the link between Duchamp's ready-mades and Picabia's line drawings? For one thing, they shared a fascination with mundane, mass-produced objects. For another, they were asking questions about the nature of art. If you were struggling to find the connection between New York and Zurich, this is it. In both cities, artists were approaching art with a new, irreverent attitude— They were embracing absurdism and rejecting solemn allegiance to tradition. And they were questioning all of the old assumptions about what was and what wasn't art. Can a line drawing of a spark plug be art? What about a snow shovel? What about random lines shouted by a guy in a cardboard bishop's outfit? Who gets to decide what is art and what isn't? There was a brief break in the fun when Pacabia's wife convinced him that he really did have to go to Cuba and buy sugar. He took care of that annoying bit of business, then went back to New York in March 1917, just in time to witness the unveiling of Duchamp's most famous, or infamous, ready-made. In early April 1917, a new arts organization began accepting submissions for their upcoming exhibition. The rules of the organization were very simple. Anyone who paid a small fee could exhibit their work. And so it was that a few days before the show opened, a delivery truck pulled up at the exhibit hall and the driver carried in the $6 fee along with a sculpture titled Fountain. It was a porcelain urinal. Oh, the chaos and the panic. There was shouting. There was pulling out of the rule book. There was stomping around. At the end of the day, the directors of the art organization decided that Fountain would not be exhibited. Now, Duchamp's name was not on the submission form or on the urinal. It was signed, in fact, R. Mutt. The work is usually attributed to Duchamp because... He immediately resigned from the art organization when it was rejected, and one of his good friends and patrons arrived on opening night and demanded to purchase the offending object. Incidentally, the urinal was found stashed in a storage area, and the patron carried it around under his arm for the rest of the evening, seriously annoying the exhibition organizers. It seems clear that Duchamp was somehow involved and at least submitted the work to the exhibit. He claimed as much in a letter. It is possible, however, that Duchamp did not create Fountain. It has also been attributed to a fascinating and largely forgotten German artist named Baroness Elsa von Freytag-Loringhoven. And again, I hope I'm getting that name somehow correct. The Baroness was another expat creating art out of found objects, and she and Duchamp ran in the same crowd. In fact, she was labeling miscellaneous objects as art at least a year before Duchamp started doing it. Fountain is very much in line with the Baroness's other works, which were all slightly scandalous and just a little bit body. However, the baroness never claimed ownership of fountain in her later years, and Duchamp certainly did. So it's all a muddle. Did Duchamp take credit for something that the baroness did? It's it's not clear. If nothing else, it's evidence that long before anyone in New York had heard the word Dada, artists there were also lifting a middle finger to society. The two strains of data connected a year and a half later. Pacabia returned to Europe in October 1917, had some sort of nervous breakdown, and moved to Lausanne, Switzerland to recover. I, I shouldn't belittle his suffering, but the guy had the most delightful and entertaining war, and it seems unjust that he should get to recuperate for months at a luxurious spa. Anyway, Tristan Zara, the boy wonder of Cabaret Voltaire, had kept the light of Dada burning after the club shut down. He ran an exhibit space and published a journal devoted to Dadaism. Zara heard through the artistic grapevine that Pacabia had been involved in creating some interesting art in New York. In August 1918, Zara wrote and introduced himself to Picabia. And so it was in January 1919, as the peace conference got underway in Paris, that Picabia and Zara met face to face in Zurich. Picabia brought a nihilistic force to the Zurich Dadaists, an insistence on destruction. The first time Zara visited Picabia, he was ruthlessly disassembling the hotel's alarm clock, springs and gears scattered everywhere. The combination of Zara and Picabia would bring Dada to its height in Paris. When the war ended, the Dadaists drifted out of Switzerland. One group took Dada to Germany. Another group, including Zara and Picabia, headed to Paris. There they were received with enormous enthusiasm by young radical artists. Zara and Pacabia created art, published journals, and held events. Pacabia wrote poetry with lines like Cannibal Manifesto and produced a painting called The Virgin Saint. It was nothing more than an ink blot. Meanwhile, Duchamp, on a visit to Paris, created one of Dada's most memorable images. He bought a cheap postcard reproduction of Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, then scribbled on the figure a mustache and goatee. He titled it with the letters L-H-O-O-Q. This is a pun in French. The letters sound like, and please forgive my French, au cul" or... Basically, she has a hot ass. Zara's events became more and more outlandish. One evening attracted a huge crowd when Zara advertised that world famous comedian Charlie Chaplin had joined the Dada movement and would be making an appearance. The public flocked to see the beloved chaplain, but instead artists read Dada manifestos to the baffled audience shouting, no more painters, no more writers, no more musicians, nothing, nothing, nothing. The artistic establishment watched all of this with tolerant amusement. Ten years earlier, artists like Pablo Picasso had been the radicals. Now, Picasso was the old guard. The war had transformed the life and art of those who remained in Paris during the war. Artistic circles had been broken up when French artists joined the war effort. Many prominent painters and sculptors were wounded and many others died in battle or of disease. Picasso's best friend was hit by shrapnel from a German shell, lay unconscious for hours in no man's land before being rescued, and needed years to recover from a serious head wound. Marcel Duchamp's brother died of typhoid fever contracted at the front. French artists of fighting age either served in the military or left the country. Those who remained in Paris were either too old to serve or immigrants from neutral countries. Picasso, for example, was a citizen of Spain, which remained neutral. He surrounded himself with other exiles, including Spaniards, Italians, and Mexicans. They scraped by in a dark and hungry Paris, enduring shortages of food and fuel. And then the art market collapsed. Picasso was in particular financial difficulty because his dealer was a German citizen and his entire stock had been seized by the French government. The changes to the art market had big consequences for the style of art that was produced. Before the war, adventurous, experimental dealers and patrons had bankrolled artists like Picasso, supporting even their most ambitious artistic experiments. Now those friendly supporters with their open pockets were gone. At the end of the war, new dealers and patrons arrived in France eager to buy art, but they were not as adventurous as their predecessors. They wanted advanced art, but not too advanced. Appealing to these new collectors pulled artists back from the brink and urged them toward a more conservative style. You can hardly condemn the artists for following the money. They were all middle-aged now and not as willing to suffer for their muse. It had been one thing for Picasso to nearly starve to death in a crappy, unheated apartment when he was in his 20s. Now he was nearly 40 and married. In 1921, he would have a son. It's not that Picasso became conventional, but if he leaned in a less radical direction, who could blame him? The result was that Picasso and all of the other one-time revolutionary artists of pre-war Paris toned down their work. They rediscovered classicism. So what do I mean by classicism? I mean art inspired by tradition, in particular, the tradition of Greek and Roman sculpture. Think about the Venus de Milo. That's classicism. This movement was soon given a name. It was called the Return to Order It was an understandable turn of events. The Great War had been chaotic, destructive, and hideously ugly. The return to order called for art to be a counteracting force, one of order, regeneration, and beauty. Some young artists issued a manifesto about the new, old movement. They wrote, Here only order and purity illuminate and orient life. To the same extent that yesterday was troubled, uncertain of its path, that which is beginning is lucid and clear. In their manifesto, they called for balance, calm, harmony, purity. This impulse wasn't limited to Paris. It took slightly different forms in different places. In the Netherlands, artists who called themselves neoplasticists looked for the universal principles of art. Their works were abstract and radically simple with straight lines and simple blocks of color. Neoplasticism's most famous practitioner was Piet Mondrian. His paintings of white canvases crossed by black lines, some of the blocks filled in with primary colors are instantly recognizable. You can see examples of Mondrian's work as well as much of the art I mentioned in this episode on the website. At the same time in Germany, the Bauhaus was founded in 1919. Bauhaus was a school intended to provide a comprehensive education in arts and crafts. Bauhaus was all about clean lines, gleaming chrome and pure white leather, primary colors and geometric shapes. Bauhaus was the precursor to Scandinavian modernism and the stripped down style we most associate with IKEA today. So here's what's happening. In Paris, the return to order is gaining steam. Picasso has abandoned his pre-war radical cubism to paint elegant, restrained, formal portraits. Artists are seeking calm and purity. It's as if they were saying, the world has lost all meaning. Therefore, we should try to restore meaning with the most clear, pure and simplified art as possible. But Dada is rolling into town. Zara is composing poetry by pulling lines out of his coat pocket. Duchamp is openly mocking the Mona Lisa, the ultimate symbol of Western civilization. It's as if the Dada's were saying the world has lost all meaning. Therefore, art has lost all meaning. Therefore, F all that. The two bands of artists didn't form mobs to raid one another's studios or anything like that. But the Dada's launched plenty of attacks. Pacabia, for example, ran a fake news article in his Dadaist journal claiming that Picasso had repented for his radical past and enrolled in an art school. But the Return to Order side didn't bother to respond. Picasso treated all of the Dada, Storm and Fury, with benevolent tolerance. He got it. He had once been young and angry. But both styles existed in the same place at the same time, and energy inevitably vibrated between them. It would take some time for the results of that interaction to become clear. Meanwhile, Dada reached its peak and then fell apart. Donna had never had much internal coherence, but the cracks were becoming wider. Some French artists wanted to patch them over by establishing a structure for the movement. They wanted to organize congresses, have guidelines, declare who was in and who was out. Nothing could have driven away Picabia faster. He thought organization was dull and pointless. Pagabia enjoyed Dada as long as it was fun, but he could go from obsession to boredom in the blink of an eye. He was no more faithful to artistic movements than he was to his wife. By the way of illustration on that point, after Pagabia moved to Switzerland with his wife and children in 1918, he arranged for his lover to join him in Lausanne. When he met her at the train station, he couldn't stop complaining about the husband of a second lover who had just tried to shoot him. Picabia lived a very interesting life. Anyway, Dada was ultimately just one of the styles that Picabia would run through. The artist once said, You have to be a nomad and go through ideas the way you go through countries and cities. Duchamp had even less invested in the Dada movement. Despite producing distinctly Dada-esque art, Duchamp had rejected any affiliation with the movement from day one. Duchamp, like Groucho Marx, didn't want to be in any club that would have him as a member. In fact, not long after he declined to become a Dadaist, he abandoned art altogether. In the mid-1920s, he devoted his life to the study of chess. If lack of loyalty was one destructive force undermining Dada, the other was rage. Dada had always contained a primal scream at the universe. One reporter describing a Dada event in Berlin in 1918 said, The artists appear with rolled up sleeves among the furious audience, screaming, threatening, egging on, sneering. They want turmoil. They want nothing but derision, dissolution, smashing up. At a Paris event in 1920, a Dados released five balloons labeled with the names of several politicians along with his personal artistic enemies. Then, with a long dagger, he brutally slashed the balloons to shreds. It's easy to understand this anger. I think a scream of rage is an appropriate reaction to, say, the Battle of the Somme. But this kind of anger is an acid. It eats up everything it touches. The French artists had no hope of corralling the chaotic forces of Dada. By the middle of 1922, Dada had ceased to be. But a strange thing happened. The chaos of Dada and the order of neoclassicism met and merged in a new movement in ways no one could have predicted. When Dada collapsed, several former members decided to create a new movement, one with a stronger intellectual foundation. They turned to the work of a Viennese neurologist who was busy publishing books and articles about his new ideas about the unconscious mind. This was, of course, Sigmund Freud. Reading Freud inspired artists to think about art in a new way. Psychoanalysis was all about tapping into the unconscious mind. Couldn't you do that with art? Couldn't you explore your dreams with paintings? Couldn't you construct poetry using free association? These artists adopted the name surrealism. The movement quickly became known for its clarity, precision, and reliance on traditional techniques of perspective and draftsmanship. Surrealists also enjoyed using classical forms and images, often in ironic ways. So here's the key point. The Surrealists were taking all of the neoclassicism of the return to order and applying it in irreverent Dadaist ways. They used traditional classical technique in paintings of melting clocks and headless women accompanied by elephant snouted mechanical monsters. Their goal was to, and this is a quote, resolve the previously contradictory conditions of dream and reality into an absolute reality, a super reality. This reality would be created with the most traditional artistic craftsmanship and skill. Which brings us to Salvador Dali. Dali, for all of his calculated strangeness, was a consummate draftsman. His clocks may be melting in ways that clocks can't possibly melt, but they are the most carefully drawn and finely detailed clocks you've ever seen. Surrealist merging of Dada's absurdism and the return to order's traditionalism has endured. Neo-surrealist and fantastical painters of today continue to create bizarre scenes with all of the details and reverence for art history as the original surrealists of the 1920s and 30s. Surrealism is the most well-known encounter between Dada and the return to order, but it's not the only place these two competing impulses met. Take, for example, literature. Tristan Zara had explained that Dada's poetry could be written by pulling random lines out of your coat pocket. One of the most famous works of literature of the early 1920s gives the feeling of being constructed in exactly this way. T.S. Eliot's 1922 poem, The Wasteland, is composed of snatches of conversation, quotes from literature, bits and pieces of language. Take these lines from the last section, which consists of scraps of nursery rhymes along with quotes from Dante, Latin poetry, Renaissance tragedies, and ancient Sanskrit texts. It's a hodgepodge in multiple languages.
1: London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Poi s'ascosi nel foco che gli affina, quando fiam ute or Oh, swallow, swallow. La Prince d'Aquitaine a la tour aboli. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Why then I'll fit you. Hieronimo's mad again. Data.
0: That's Alec Guinness reading The Wasteland. I've put a link on the website so you can listen to Guinness read the entire poem, or you can go read it yourself. There is a feeling that The Wasteland has been assembled at random, especially if you're reading the poem for the first time and have no idea what's going on. In fact, The Wasteland only feels random. In reality, it's as painstakingly composed as Dali's clocks. It's a carefully constructed simulation of random. The poem's meaning arises out of the interaction of all of these bits and pieces. Now, we know that Eliot was familiar with Dada. In 1919, he reviewed a book by Tristan Zara. Meanwhile, his good friend Ezra Pound moved to Paris in 1921 and was good friends with Picabia and Duchamp. Pound then helped his buddy Tom by editing the draft of The Wasteland. I'm not saying Eliot was directly inspired by Dada's poetry, but there is a connection. But there is also a connection to the return to order, or at least the concept of drawing on tradition, even after that tradition has been battered and broken. The Wasteland quotes from a gobsmackingly wide cross section of literature, as we just saw from that one excerpt. Quotes include Virgil, Dante, Shakespeare, Chaucer, and the Bible. By heavily relying on sources that are considered part of the foundation of Western culture, the poem insists that these sources still have meaning and power. Civilization may have fractured, but the scraps left behind should not be discarded. Remember in the lines that I quoted, Eliot says...
1: These fragments I have shored against my ruins.
0: It's a rejection of the Dadaist impulse to burn down the remains of Western culture and dance in the ashes. Didn't last long, but its influence extended far into the future. By the end of the 20th century, Dada had inspired multiple movements, including conceptual art, pop art, performance art, shock art, and of course, neo-Dada. Andy Warhol's soup cans are descendants of Duchamp's urinal. Yoko Ono's book, Grapefruit, which is an artwork that consists of instructions for imagining artwork, is the descendant of Zara's poetry. The bead poets were deeply shaped by Dada. In the late 1950s, Allen Ginsberg met Marcel Duchamp in Paris. Ginsberg was so overwhelmed, he knelt on the floor and kissed the knees of a very embarrassed Duchamp. Both Frank Zappa and David Bowie cited Dada as an influence. Beyond that, a Dada’s attitude has sunk deep into our culture. The Marx Brothers are Dada, and so is Monty Python. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is Dada. Springtime for Hitler from the producers. Andy Kaufman, Talking Heads, Devo, and Lady Gaga. Llamas with Hats and The Lobster. Many of the darker, more absurdist internet memes. I think you could reasonably argue that the entire existence of Bill Murray is Dada. I think of the meme of the dog sitting in a room filled with flames saying, this is fine. Whenever the Dada impulse thrives, you can be sure that this is not fine. Fine. Hugo Ball called Dada, quote, a gladiator's gesture, a play with shabby leftovers, the death warrant of posturing morality. Dada returns every time the world gets really dark and really weird. Thank you so much for listening today. Please check out the website at theyearthatwaspodcast.com. I've included lots of photos and images. You can see Hugo Ball in his magic bishop costume, as well as most of the art that I've mentioned. You can also check out the Facebook page. If you've got questions, please ask. And I'd really like to know from you, what contemporary or recent culture do you consider Dada? I couldn't create this podcast if scholars and researchers didn't put years of their lives into these topics. This week, I particularly want to call out Jed Rassela's 2015 book, Destruction Was My Beatrice, Dada and the Unmaking of the Twentieth Century. It's the clearest and most comprehensive history of Dada I've ever encountered. I had to leave out so much stuff that Rastula explores, including the Dada experience in Germany, which is fascinating stuff. Check it out for yourself. I put a link to the book on the website. So next week, we're going to shift our attention eastward and look at the post-war period in Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, remember how I told you that the Great War ended on November 11th, 1918? Well, it didn't really. Not, not really. Not at all, actually thanks so much for listening to the year that was please subscribe and leave a rating or review i really appreciate it thanks again this is the year that was 1919